The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. Lee says I smile a lot, so this is your first Sunday here. <laughs> Keep up the image. <laughs> so uh, four Saturdays ago, I was here. I shared some of this with you last month. This was my band when I was a teenager. That's the replacements on their much heralded reunion tour. Now, they came out for a second encore at the end of this show here in Philadelphia. And they did a song that they had not been doing this entire leg of the tour. It is their most famous song. Didn't make them any money back in the 80s, but it made them just about everyone's critics darlings. That song is called Unsatisfied. Now, for me, when I heard that song at 15 years old, I thought, yeah, this is me. My soul is unsatisfied. So much pain, so much angst. This was me. They were singing my song, singing my life. Hmm. So here's the thing. I understand why they had not been doing unsatisfied on this tour so far. They're older. They're not unsatisfied anymore. They're making their first real money for the first time in their lives from their music. They're sober. They're healthy. They're alive. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know if any of you were there. I was not. Great band. I'm not trying to put down classic rock, although I've been known for doing that. But it's like the Who comes around and plays their 85,000th you know, concert they played in Philadelphia over the years. And they do My Generation. And they sing those lines. I hope I die before I get old. Really, Pete Townshend? Really, Walter jo- Roger Daltrey? You're going to get back all that money you've made since you've gotten old? It doesn't make sense. But here's the thing. When the replacements came out and did Unsatisfied, it was unlike any other version I've heard of that song before. It was humble. Vulnerable sad, tender, contemplative. The old version of unsatisfied didn't make sense for them now. But they turned it into something that acknowledged who they were, that was true to who they are. Embracing the past, but understanding it differently. It's almost like they said, this is who we are right now, looking back at who we were and all that space between past and present. We own and honor and bow to all of it. It helped make us who we are. One of our core values here at Wellsprings we call living with integrity. And that version of unsatisfied I heard what we talk about in terms of how it is to live with integrity. It requires vulnerability and humility. A deep desire to own our lives. This morning's Spirit Flicks message continuing this summer series here at Wellsprings on meaning in the movies, the Babadook. It is all about this necessity of integrating our lives, of owning who we are as fully as we are able. 
and as the movie shows the costs of not being able or willing or in too much pain to be able to do that. Now, this movie, focusing on these two characters, it's a horror movie. And I want to say it was a really scary horror movie, which is rare. Most horror movies are awful. (laughs) They're all about blood and guts and gore. And after you get overseeing the shock of the blood and the guts and the gore for the first time, it's like, eh, just don't care about the characters. They're just there to be mangled or murdered or whatever. But real fear isn't just in the body. Real fear is in the psyche and in the heart. And that's what this movie gets at. It's about these two characters, Amelia, the mom, and Sam. And I forget the dog's name, although I'm not going to give that part away. He figures in prominently. When we first meet Amelia and Sam, they are not doing well. They are approaching Sam's sixth birthday, which is an emotionally weighted, heavy moment in this family's life. Because it was six years ago, on the day Sam was born, that Amelia's husband, Sam's dad, was driving Amelia to the hospital to deliver Sam, and they had a car crash, and he died. Trauma from the beginning of life for Sam. They are an isolated, socially marginalized, grief-stricken family. And at first, when we start watching the movie, we figured, oh, we've seen this before. Yeah, it's done well, but we've seen it before. This is the classic bad seed story. The kid who sees monsters everywhere, who's well on the way to becoming a monster himself. He looks under... The bed, in the closets, he fashions all of these really wicked, and I don't mean that in the Boston, New England understanding of wicked. I mean wicked as in evil, as in scary uh, weapons to be able to do battle with all of these monsters. And then a particular monster shows up. The Babadook. I could have shown you a much scarier picture of the Babadook. And it's a book. It's a book that just shows up on the bookshelves one day. And Amelia makes the worst parenting choice in her life to read that to Sam as his goodnight story. (laughs) Because the first thing that they read in the Babadook book is this. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of of the Babadook with his claw-like hands and razor-like teeth. And they attempt to get rid of the book, throw it out, burn it, tear it up. And yet, the book keeps coming back. It even changes how it reads. I'll wager with you, I'll make you a bet. The more you deny, the stronger I get. And the story moves beyond the book. This movie is all about repression's revenge. All about the stuff that we wish to deny and might hide from within ourselves and yet still has an urgency. The more we resist, the more it persists. Particularly big stuff like death. 
and grief. This movie made absolute sense to me. It made sense to me because of all the work and reading I've done about the shadow self and all the things we don't want to acknowledge about ourselves that are still true anyway. And the more we ignore them, the more power they have. But I want to tell you, it's not because I've read about that or the work that I've done in that area. Why this made sense to me was because for the first two years after my mom's untimely, unexpected, and as we came to understand only later, medically unnecessary death at the age of 47 on Thanksgiving Day in 1992, I could not allow myself to grieve. I would rage at the unfairness of it all. I would numb myself out constantly, but I did not grieve. Until two years after that, that all the other things that I had been using to hide away in, doing really well in school, the woman I was dating, alcohol, even alcohol wouldn't work anymore for me. And then the anxiety attack started. Every single day for months on end, full on, full bore, panic attacks. We may think, or I may have thought I was faster than grief, but grief was right there ready for me, telling, pay attention, listen. After a bunch of months, some of the worst in my life, the symptoms eased a little bit. I found some relief. But I didn't find healing. That did not happen until 10 years later. When I was living in South Florida and I had started therapy, and I have seen a lot of therapists, folks. The therapist who has meant the most to me in my life. Because he wasn't just a therapist, he was like a soul spelunker. (laughs) He was a guide into the things I did not want to face about myself. And coming up on what would have been, I believe, by that point, the 12th anniversary of my mother's death after working with him for several months and establishing a lot of trust, he asked me at the start of a session, today I'd like you to tell me the story, the exact story as you remember it, of the day your mom died. And I unearthed details that I had not thought of in 12 years. The sound of my father's voice as he said my mother's name as she was slipping away. The kindness of the workers in the ER who worked on her for hours. The fact that literally my body was in so much shock, and I won't be more particular than this, it purged everything within me over 12 hours. Seeing my mom's body after they had done working on her, and there was nothing more they could do. Getting back to our grief-stricken apartment and seeing the spot that they had cleared out in my parents' bedroom and all the tumult. And then one small spot right on the floor 
a drop of her blood where they had put in an ivy. Excuse me. It took me an hour and a half to share all of that. And by the end of it, I felt like a part of my soul had been given back to me. It's not at all a surprise to me, folks, that less than a year after that, I was finally ready to get sober. I was stuck for many years, as perhaps some of you are stuck right now, with some of your pain and your loss that maybe you think you don't have time for or you don't have the strength for. But over and over I've witnessed in my life in other people's lives that we think we don't have time for grief, but grief will always make time for us. Not just the big deaths, but the little ones too. The natural losses and broken places in our heart that we accumulate simply because we live. This is why I loved this past week this thing from the New York Times that I posted and interacted with some of you online about. It's called Getting Grief Right. And it's from a therapist, a guy named Patrick O'Malley, who was working with one of these people who thought they didn't have time for grief, didn't have time for broken hardness, didn't have time for their pain, and yet their world seemed to be crumbling around them. A woman, a very accomplished professional, a person who was wondering why she hadn't gotten over yet, even in less than a year, the death of her beloved daughter. And the therapist described how he approached this person. He said very gently, using simple, non-clinical words, I suggested to Mary that there was nothing wrong with her. She was not wrong. She was not depressed. She was just very sad, consumed by sorrow, but not because she was grieving incorrectly. The depth of her sadness, he concludes, the depth of her sadness was simply a measure of the love she had for her daughter. We can get so caught up in this stages of grief linear thing like we think we're climbing a ladder and we get to the end and that's it. That has done more damage. I mean, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is wonderful, but when we think that as a linear thing, wow, is that off target. Because the truth is that sometimes we have to go the full distance of walking through the valley of the shadow of death if we ever want to see again the full light of love in our lives. To travel, be willing to travel that space. And we're not sure the way out. And we're not sure we're always making progress. Because the truth is, this society, the way we've structured things, so unhealthy doesn't really want to give us much time for death. It wants to tell us, oh, you take a week. You come back to work then. Maybe you come to Jewish tradition. You get a little extra time to sit Shiva. Then get back to work. Get back to life. So little space we leave for the one thing that unites us all. Because it's messy. 
I cannot tell you how many people I have sat with over the years who have said in one form or another these words, I don't like to cry. I'm an ugly crier. It's messy. And you know what? So many of us pride ourselves as being people. You know what we do? We fix messes. We clean messes. We get back on the straight and narrow and keep making progress and keep moving on. And we get this message over and over again in our lives. And we wonder why we're in so much pain. We've got to make time for the valley of the shadow of death if we want to see the light. This is why when I am engaged in any death ritual, memorial service, a funeral, I explicitly say the one word you're not going to hear from me today that I invite you not to do, closure. That is the worst grieving world word in the world. I hate that word. And I don't hate a lot of things because it does damage and it disconnects us from our own hearts. That's what's going on in the Babadook. Amelia will not celebrate Sam's birthday on his birthday because she's closed down. She won't do that excavation. She has sealed up the basement. Obvious symbolism, folks, downstairs, down in the dark, all the places where all the remembrances of her husband are kept and it's kept under lock and key. And so we recognize as we're watching this movie, this is not Sam the bad seed movie. This is not Sam as the problem. Sam is the symptom. It's Amelia who hasn't done the work. Now, this work is not easy. I know it from my own life. Maybe you're in the middle of it right now. There is no timeline. And it it's based only upon your willingness to be humble and vulnerable to your own experience. It took me years. And yet, when we open, which is what I invite people to do, in all the death rituals and grieving rituals that I lead, don't close open. You can find there a vast realm of creativity that can help us heal. This movie is subtle. It does things really smart, really sly. We hear Amelia say offhandedly, oh, I used to be a writer like before the death, before Sam was born. And we come to realize, at least I did, that she's the person who wrote the Babadook. Even if she doesn't remember it. She's going on years of being sleep deprived here, folks. And the world starts to get very, very hazy for her. And so we recognize that the Babadook is not her destruction. It's her salvation. <laughs> bringing up all the things she doesn't want to face. I read the Babadook, this movie, as art therapy on steroids. <laughs> It's her coming to claim her story and tell her story. And alongside that, the fact that creativity for healing also needs companions. Because this is the other piece. Especially today, if you know what, you're not grieving or you're not in touch with your own grieving. You're wondering, well, what does it have to do with me? Is this my story? And I'd say, well, are you, were you born? Were you all born? Are you all going to die? It's your story. It's our story. But maybe we don't think that. Or maybe we're not in pain. Well, the movie also does a really fine job of showing people who want other people to just move beyond their pain. 
and sometimes the vast cruelty that is there. She's surrounded by people, her own family, Amelia is, who are kind of, eh, get over it. Doesn't matter. What's all the trouble? What's all the fuss about? And we recognize the hell of loneliness and also start to see the heaven that is kindness. We see it through their old, aged, next-door neighbor who can't really do anything for them but regularly asks after them. How are you and Sam? It reminds me of my favorite story of King Arthur, the Arthurian, Arthurian legends. It doesn't have anything to do with the love triangle of what, Guinevere, Genevieve, Lancelot, Arthur, all that stuff. It doesn't have anything to do with Merlin. It doesn't have anything to do with Excalibur. It has to do with a young knight named Parsifal who has to learn to ask one question of people who are suffering. What ails you? When he asks that question, everything around him changes. Now, I doubt, and actually the traditional way of saying this is, what aileth you? I doubt you're going to ask each other, what aileth you? But you can ask, are you all right? I mean, really? Are you all right? We can be the friend who pays attention. We can be the friend who cares. Who shows up. Who doesn't just pretend that life should be normal. And yes, people get stuck in their grief and get stuck in their loss. And sometimes that can be a pretty narcissistic place to be. I've been there. But the goal is not to deny our pain. It is an opportunity to enlarge our hearts. There's a very basic story associated with the Buddhist tradition that says a young mother grieving for her child if she has lost approaches the Buddha one day because there start to be stories that he has the capacity for miracle working and for magic. And she asks, can you restore my daughter to me? And the story goes that the Buddha replies, yes, but first I need you to do something for me. I need you to go through all of the villages surrounding this area, and I need you to bring me back one grain of rice from one household who has never tasted death or known grieving. And she comes back a year later with no grain of rice, but with a wise heart. Because she recognizes that what she has suffered and lost, almost everyone else has tasted as well. She learns to grow a spacious heart. Room for her story and others. She learns to tell the most basic story there is. The grandest story of love and loss and healing. She does... What Amelia eventually does, what I think I saw the replacements do, what the woman in the Buddha story does, which is this. A giant redwood. You all know the rings of redwood, right? Those are stages of its growth as it goes through life. But imagine that those outer rings 
turn towards its inner rings and embrace them. Embrace the pain and the joy and the sadness and the light and the death and all the things they had to let go of. Imagine your life as a giant redwood turning towards your experience, turning towards your own heart, saying, without you, without what came before, all these inner rings, there is no me. Imagine claiming all of that experience for yourself, integrating all of it, embracing all of who you are. Because ultimately, that's the liberation in just about every horror movie there is. At least the good ones. I'm not controlled by you anymore. Hungry ghost, angry demon, scary monster. I can live at home with you now. And we can live at home with ourselves now. With ourselves with each other, and with this life. Today, may you embrace the darker places. May you embrace all your inner rings. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God, who is not afraid and encourages us to be not afraid, of the neglected parts of ourselves. Encourages us not to deny the hurting parts of ourselves. Encourages us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death because as certainly as belovedness and blessedness is our birthright, so too is death and grief part of our birthright. May finally we have the kind of hearts that are able to accept this life exactly as it is whole, not just cut out the parts we do not like or the parts we think we're not strong enough to take, but finally integrate and own and become all of it. May we grow hearts as wide as the world. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.